You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we draw to you through Jesus Christ, come to you through Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you have sent, and we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive your truth, that you'd forgive sinners for their sins, they'd turn to you even this morning, and that your church would be stronger for having gathered and heard your word. Empower the hearing and preaching of your word, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the Ten Commandments are God's law of nature. They're the natural law. And they are the moral constitution of reality. And they still stand. And I've tried to argue this and present this to you, uh, they have abiding authority over our lives because they reveal the very character of God himself. They reveal the very character of God himself. And I've spent now several weeks on the sixth, the sixth commandment. And I spent about three weeks talking about war and just war and self-defense and all this stuff because there's so much confusion, I think, on these things at this particular moment in time. Things that previous generations may have taken for granted, but things that have been lost to us. I'm gonna spend one more week on the Sixth Commandment, but I'm gonna take a, a different take on it today. And I'm gonna get really to the heart of things uh, this morning as we look at the Sixth Commandment. And this is the love of God that stands behind the Sixth Commandment. The love of God that stands behind the sixth commandment. This is getting to the very heart. Why do we have the sixth commandment? The commandment that says you shall not kill. 
Well, the reason we have the sixth commandment, the commandment that says you shall not kill, is because we have a God who loves. And he is a God who calls us to love. And so really, if you look at commandments 5 through 10, all of those commandments are about love. You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. These are all about how you love people, how you love people. But I think, I think this is likely strongest or most strongly seen in the sixth commandment because it's dealing with our treatment of human life in general and how special and sacred human life actually is. And so I, we need to understand that God is love. And I think generally people understand that. If you talk to somebody on the street, even if they don't go to church and don't understand the Bible very well, your average person, if, you're gonna, if they're going to name one attribute of God, the first one they're going to go to quite often is that God is love. Of course, God loves us. God loves everybody. And that's true. But more often than not, I suspect, whether in the church or outside of the church, as opposed to getting to the heart of the matter and understanding what that actually means, what we end up with is a bunch of sentimental goo. So that the notion that God is love and God loves us is just some fluffy, feel-good, sentimentalized notion is opposed to the milk and the meat of Scripture. It is, it is often devoid of anything that is biblical other than the word love itself. So it's empty sentimentality, gushy feelings that really actually mean nothing. And so I want to clarify today some aspects about God's love and talk about this. And I am talking about God's love, and then I'm talking about the love that God requires of us towards other people. God's love and the love that God requires of us for other people. It's important as we think about love <clears throat> excuse me, is you think about love and these other concepts that are good, like forgiveness um, and so on, if we want to have a godly love, we have to love like God, right? If the word godly is modifying our love, so it's describing our love. Your love is godly, godlike. What we need to do is study the love of God, and really get to understand how God loves people. And this will help us greatly as we try to learn to love other people and love one another. And so today, I'm talking about the love of God, and then I'm going to make some application on our love that we're supposed to have towards other people. Uh, this is an application of the 5th through 10th commandment, I think, but I think there's a special application to the 6th here because the 6th deals so explicitly with the value and sanctity of human life. And this is why we love other people 
because they have an intrinsic value to them and human life, just because it's human life, is valuable. And this is a special application of the Sixth Commandment. And the Sixth Commandment, of course, is you shall not kill. And behind killing, Jesus, as Jesus taught, is hatred, right? So what does Jesus teach us? You shall not hate. And remember what we've learned? If the commandment forbids something, what does it do? It commands or demands the opposite good. And so as an application of the sixth commandment, Jesus said we're not supposed to hate our brother, right? And then if we're going to interpret that and apply it properly, it's not just the prohibition of hatred, but it's the commandment to love. And so this is very much tied up in the sixth commandment. Jesus exposits the sixth commandment, gets to the heart, do not hate. But if we're not to hate, what are we supposed to do? It's not just enough to not hate. We're actually supposed to love. And so I'm going to have three headings this morning. Talk about God's love. We're going to talk about discriminating love, which is grounded in God's love. And then I'm going to talk about Christ's love, specifically in the gospel. God's love, discriminating love, and Christ's love. Let's talk about God's love under this first heading here. God's love. And as I've already said, if we're going to learn how to love, we need to look to the one who is love. And that's God. Scriptures say he is love. God is love. And God's love manifests itself differently depending on who it's directed to and what is involved. You see, we, we use this word love as if it means the same thing to all people at all times, but if you start to comb through the Bible, what you see is that God's love manifests itself differently and distinctly dependent upon who it is directed to and what specifically is going on in the moment. God's love. So we'll look at that. I have spoken on this before, very briefly, almost as an off-the-cuff comment a few weeks ago, but I want to develop it more here. I want to develop it more here. And in the next little <coughs> section under this point that, about God's love, I'm relying heavily on a book I read probably two decades ago by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And he helped me start to think through this and, and grapple with these things years ago. And so I'm relying heavily upon what I learned from that book and is as I've compared it to the scriptures over the years. But it really helped me understand it. And in his book, he outlines different types of God's love, or different manifestations of God's love. And that's what I'm going to list here. I've worded some of it differently, and I've kind of nuanced it a little bit differently from what he did at times. But essentially, he helped me, and, and what I'm doing is I'm building off this idea that there are different types of God's love. And you see this in the scriptures. God's love. So what is God's love? Well, very foundational to the love of God is the love between the members of the Trinity. Love between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. The love between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. This, this makes 
the God of the Bible distinct from other monotheistic gods, especially as you consider Islam. And so the God of the Bible has always loved because God has always, the Father has always loved the Son, the Son has always loved the Holy, or the, the Father, the Holy Spirit has been a recipient and a giver of love within this relationship for all of eternity past. And so as you think about the Trinity, you think about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, only one God, each one of those persons is God, and yet they're three distinct persons. This is a mystery to you. It should be. And so the entire Christian faith is premised upon a mystery. And it's the mystery of the Holy Trinity. But this, this renders the God of the Bible distinct from other monotheistic gods that other men have conjured up. And specifically, I'm naming Islam this morning. Because the God of the Bible has always loved but it is impossible for the God of Islam to have always loved because before there was creation, the God of Islam existed on his own and there was no object of love because he was on his own. Whereas the God of the Bible existed within Trinity for all of eternity past and so there has always been an object of love within the Trinity, a relationship within the Trinity. The very foundation of Christianity, our God is relational, our God is loving. No other monotheistic religion can say that. You can't say it. Because before creation, the gods of other monotheistic religions that believe in one God, for example, Islam, had no object to love and had no community. Whereas the God of Scripture lived in community within the Trinity and had objects of his love. So the very foundation of our understanding of love is God's intra-Trinitarian love. And you see this come through at various parts of the Bible. I'll just show one or two here. But for example, John 3.35, it says, the Father loves the Son. Right? So you see this love manifesting itself within the persons of the Trinity. Or John 14, 21, where it says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 21. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's John 14, 31. And this is the first principle of love. The first principle of love is that there is love within the Godhead that has always been. And then so any recipients of the love of God, it is a love that is coming out of this love that has always existed. And so as we talk about God's love, we begin with God as Trinity. And by the way, that's one of the reasons we named this church Trinity. Because the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all that is. God. And God is the foundation of all that exists. And so at the, the very, very, very most basic principle of reality is the Trinity. 
is the doctrine of the Trinity. And so as we look at the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father, this intra-Trinitarian love, then we move on to another aspect of God's love which pours out of this intra-Trinitarian love, which is God's love for all that he has made, especially for all people. <clears throat> and we see this in Scripture. This is the... We have now passed the summer season, haven't we? And we feel this now in the crisper weather and the leaves are turning. And it's fall, just like last year. And just like the year before that. And just like the year before that. And just like the year before that. And fall will eventually turn to winter, just like the year before that. And the year before. And eventually we'll get the spring and summer and fall again. And it just, the cycle repeats itself. You know that winter's coming, and you know that spring's coming, you know that summer's coming, you know that fall's coming, and this is the way it is. And this is the love of God for all that he's made. He has consistently set the seasons in order so that they are predictable, built on his unchanging character so that he can provide for us. Right? The seasons will turn, and then it'll be time to put crops in the ground, and then the seasons will turn, and then it'll be time to harvest those crops, and then you have store for the winter. And every year, it's the same thing, because he loves us. And he loves all human beings, God does. We see this in Matthew 5, verse 45. And Jesus, in this passage, is telling us to love our enemies. And so we learn something about enemy love in this passage. In verse 44, Jesus says of Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then verse 45, he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So as you consider God's love that is indiscriminate, this is a love that does not discriminate, it's the way that he loves everyone the same. So... There's, there's very evil people in this city that we live in. I, I trust you know that. Just watch the news. Okay? And then there's evil things that happen by evil people that you don't even hear about. But then there's people that love the Lord and fear the Lord. And whether they're evil or they're God-fearing, all of this is given to them indiscriminately. The seasons change, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, the rain falls, the rain stops falling, it's a nice day, it's a wet day, it's a hot day, it's a cold day. You get a crop, you get a harvest, there's food that's available for you. All of this is for all people, indiscriminately at the hand of God. This is the type of love that we are to show our enemies, and I'll talk about that later. The type of love that we are to show our enemies. It's a general love for everybody. This love originates within the Trinity and then it becomes God's love for everyone. <clears throat> but then you move on and God's love gets more specific. Okay? His love gets more specific now. And then so you have God's free offer of the gospel to all people. This is his love. Now, the gospel doesn't reach all people. There's only some people that it reaches. And so there's a, a special love and a special grace that starts to come. 
You know, we want it to reach all people, but doesn't. Not everyone gets to hear the gospel before they die. But nevertheless, the gospel is to go out to all people. And so John 3.16 tells us, for what? God so loved the world. This is a universal message of redemption for everyone. So that I can stand up here and I can say, whoever you are, whoever you are, you, you, no matter what family you come from, no matter what language you speak, how evil you perceive yourself to be or how good you perceive yourself to be, I have the good news of salvation to you, so come to Jesus Christ and be saved. This is God's love, that he would offer the gospel freely to all. And you are a special recipient of God's love if you heard that message. But it's yours if you just believe. And this is something that is clear in Scripture. Well, we go on, and I've talked about God's love, right? So God's love within the Trinity and God's love generally to all people and the sun going up, the sun going down, the seasons, the rain, and so on. Then God's love and the free offer of the gospel to all. And then we get even more specific. And this is where his love becomes discriminate. He discriminates amongst people. He has a special love for his people that he does not have for other people. A special love for his people that he does not love for his people. God's particular love for his people. This is a love that discriminates between those who are his and those who are not his. And we see this in different parts of the Bible. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you, it is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so in the Old Testament, this specific love, God says it right there. He, he has loved his people in a way that he has not loved other people. And he brought them out of slavery and set them apart. And you see this in New Testament times as he directs that special love towards his church. So in Ephesians 5, verse 25, for example, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Is Christ loved the church and gave himself up for who? Her, specifically. And so Jesus Christ, God through Christ, loves his church in the special way that a husband is to love his wife, and that is a discriminating love. As I said a few weeks ago, there's no guy in here who better be saying, going home to his wife and saying, I love you just like I love every other woman. Right? You, you might get a slap across the face for that one. Boy, that would be a bad decision, man. That would be a bad decision to go home and say that. And not only would that be a bad decision because the reaction you're going to get, but that'd be a bad decision because it'd be sin. And in Ephesians 5 and other parts of the Bible, God compares his love for his people 
to the way a husband is supposed to exclusively love his wife. Discriminating love. And this is why in this particular love, you, naturally speaking, you love your family more than other families, don't you? As you should. You love your children more than other people's children. As you should. Right? You love, hopefully, your church more than other churches. Doesn't mean you hate other churches, but doesn't mean you hate other children, and it doesn't mean you hate other families. But the closer it is to you relationally, the more you love it as compared to other things. So you have a greater obligation to the people around you who God's put in your life than you do to other people is what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> and this is the way God operates. He has a special particular love. And this is why we get into so many problems in our society is because people don't understand a discriminating love. They think, oh, we just love everyone the same way. No. No. This is why you should love your country more than every other country. Same type of thing. You have a greater obligation to your country than you do to someone else's country. You have a greater obligation to your city than you do to someone else's city. You have a greater obligation to your church than you do to someone else's church. You're more, more invested. And it's based on this discriminating love as we look at God's special love for his people, as I talked about the whole idea of just war and just civil war and self-defense, that we now can say your obligation towards those who are a threat to you or your family or your loved ones is different than your obligation to those who are your family or your loved ones. So your love towards your enemy in the instance of self-defense or whatever is a love that will restrain from going to the the extreme in defending yourself, if you can. But it doesn't mean it's a love that restrains you from completely defending yourself. Because it's a discriminating love. God's love is discriminating. Because he has a special love for his people. <clears throat> and this is godly. It's ungodly to have something else. This is godly. And so you start applying this in your life, and it's godly. God's particular love for his people. So what, have I, what am I talking about today? I'm talking about my first point, God's love. God's love within the Trinity. Right? God's love for all of humanity, and then he provides for everyone. God's free offer of the gospel for all of humanity. And then I just talked about God's particular love for his people where his people now become the object of his affection and the apple of his eye. And then one more aspect of God's love that we see in the Bible is God's disciplining love that he has for his people. His disciplining love is a father loves his children by disciplining them, so God loves his children. And I'll show you, I mean, Hebrews 12, of course, talks about that. And we're going to look, though, at Jude, verse 21. I want you to see Jude, verse 21, where it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Can you believe that? St. Jude is able to say to the church, You keep yourselves in the love of God. I thought salvation was unmerited. Since when am I supposed to keep myself in the love of God? 
And what this is talking about here in Jude verse 21 is the same thing that other parts of the Bible talk about, is that keeping yourself in the love of God does not mean you're keeping yourself saved. It means that you're keeping yourself within this warm relationship with God your Father so that you're not stepping out of that warm relationship with God the Father and now he's disciplining you as a father disciplines his son. And you, anyone who has a father knows this, and anyone who has kids knows this. You always love your kids, don't you? Right? And if you had a good father, your father always loved you. Always does. But the minute you get out of line, your father's love doesn't change. But the manifestation of that love changes. Because now you're not getting that warm fellowship with your father, but you're getting the discipline. And that's what Jude's talking about. And so it's this disciplining love, this relational love. Right? And anyone who is a, in, in, has a, is a boss or in management or is an employee of a boss understands this. Right? Well, why would you discipline your employees if they step out of line? It's not because you don't love them, it's because you do love them and you hope they succeed, right? But the warmth is lost in the moment, just as it is with a father and a son. And so any relationship where there's authority, this is being applied within that relationship. It applies to human relationships where there is an authority structure, the most obvious being those between children and parents, but it manifests itself anytime there is an authority structure. The disciplining love. <clears throat> the disciplining love. And so what have I talked about this morning so far? Well, I'm, I've been talking about God's love, and I'm trying to show you that God's love is much more complex and multifaceted than just simply running around tritely saying, well, of course God loves me. He loves everybody. There's more to this. It begins with this love within the Trinity, and then it extends to all of creation, and then you have this free offer of the gospel, and then you have this discriminating love where God sets his affection especially on his people, and then as he sets his affection especially on his people, there is this disciplining love that comes out. <clears throat> So we need to do away with this notion that God loves all people the same way all the time. That superficial sentimentality, it's guck, gook. It's no good. And we would be well, and things would function better if we understood God's love. Any, and by, anyone attempting to love all people the same way is gonna get themselves into problems, big time. It just doesn't work in reality. Nor should it, because God created reality. God created reality. And so this is not of God when people say that we love all people the same way. We don't. You love different people differently just as God loves different people differently. But there is ways in which we love all people the same way. We hope for everyone's best and well-being, and if we can help, we do. But there is a special affection that is upon those who are closest to you. So that's God's love. Now let's talk, I've talked about God's love. I've talked about God's love. Now let's talk about discriminating love as it applies to human relationships. 
So I'm taking that one aspect of love that I looked at, God's discriminating love towards his special people, and now I'm applying it towards human relationships. Towards human relationships. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you, in this section, several ways in which God expects us to love different people different ways. And I'm going to compare and contrast. I'm not being exhaustive in this. I'm not giving you, you know, every single situation. But what I'm giving you is the principle applied so that when you face a situation, now you're mentally prepared in your mind and in your heart to say, okay, how do I do this here? Oh, yeah, there's this way that I'm supposed to love different people different ways. So what am I going to do in this moment? But I am going to give you a bunch of situations as it pertains to discriminating love of God applied. God loves all people, but he doesn't love all people the same. He loves all people, but his love for his people is greater than his love for those who are not his people. And this applies to us in our relationships. And so to exemplify this, I will distinguish between various relationships. So let's make the first distinction here. There, and I've already stated this. It should be obvious. There is a distinction between your household and other people's households. This should be most obvious to you. There is a great distinction between your household and the household of other people. So that in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. More important than the poor out there are the people within your own household. So your sense of charity and benevolence towards the poor out there, okay, great, but that cannot take away from the people that you've been charged to take care of in your own household. So you have, your primary duty is to provide for your own household. And then once you do that, then if there's, out of the overflow, you can help others. But the Apostle Paul says, if you do not provide, you know, I think there's a special burden as far as the material provision on fathers and husbands here. If you do not provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever, an infidel, some translations say. And so we've, we've had, there's guys like this every now and then that come into the church. They talk a really big game theologically. They know the Bible, they can talk theologically, they know the Christian lingo, the Christian talk, but they don't provide for their families. And over the years, I've had to and we've had to confront a number of guys like that. And they either end up leaving the church, repenting, or being put under church discipline. Because they, they go around and talk like Christians, but they can't provide or they won't provide. And there's always a good reason why they won't provide. You know, I'm, you know, whatever, I don't even need to go into all the reasons. But the Proverbs kind of makes fun of guys like that. Because they give good reasons in the Proverbs. He won't provide for his family because there's a lion outside, right? Just crazy excuses. 
He turns on his bed like a door turns on its hinges. Right? Keeps hitting snooze. Can't get up in the morning and make it to work on time. Okay? And so <clears throat> there's a distinction between those in your household and those outside of your household is what I'm trying to say. Discriminating love. <clears throat> now here's another one. Discriminating love. There's a distinction between, and I've talked about this, I've touched on this already. There's a distinction between the love of enemies and the love of friends. This is where a lot of people, I, I fear, get really, really confused. And so you have an obligation to your enemies, but your primary obligation is to those who are closest to you. And hence, the sermons I preached on war, self-defense, civil war, and so on. Because God's love for his enemies, yes, it includes providing for them, sun on them, rain on them, seasons changing for them. But he also possesses such a great love for his people that he is willing to send the enemies of his people straight to hell when they die. And there's nothing loving about sending someone to hell. Nothing. That is to receive the full fury of God's wrath. And by the way, when you think about the full fury of God's wrath and sending someone to hell, you have to do away with this whole idea that gets thrown around, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. There's no love for the sinner in hell. None. And so that is, in one sense, a superficial statement. Because the sinner will have no opportunity to be the recipient of love and hell. And this is why in, for example, Romans 12, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul says to leave vengeance to the Lord, right? So, beloved, never avenge yourselves. I talked about this last week, I think. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to eat. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So, what, just pay attention to that tax. What's that telling you how to treat your enemies? You're, it's telling you to love your enemies the same way God loves his enemies, which is what? Sun and rain on the wicked and the righteous. And then wait, if they don't repent, for God to throw them into hell. What's it saying? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And when you talk about burning coals on their heads... What, what do you think that means? Every time the use of the word burning coal is used in, it, words burning coal is used in scripture, it's talking about judgment. So what you're doing is you're treating them as God tells you to treat them, and then you're waiting for God's wrath to visit them should they not repent. And this is why it is wholly consistent to love your enemies by caring for them, but also waiting for God to judge them, and praying imprecatory prayers about them. What do you think Romans 12 is? It's the hope of an answered imprecatory prayer that God's vengeance will visit your enemies. So how does God love his enemies? <clears throat> well, some of them actually he forgives when they repent and they come into his kingdom. But if they don't repent, his wrath rests upon them and they're thrown into hell. Yet he provides for them while that day approaches and draws nigh. 
So I've, I'm looking at discriminating loves, discriminating loves. Let's um, look at a few more here before I wrap this up. You have the distinction as you discriminate in love between those who are actually poor and those who are lazy. That's scriptural. This is something that our society is terribly confused on. Can't distinguish between this at all. Right? You have an obligation to help those who are actually poor. Maybe it's because they're widows or orphans or they have some type of handicap and you need to care for them. But you don't have an obligation to care for lazy people. In fact, you're supposed to let them be hungry. The problem with a lot of lazy people is they're just not hungry enough. I remember I worked with an old guy at a factory years ago on the assembly line, and he had a lot of wisdom, and, I, and he would just talk the whole time, and I kind of listened to him, and he started talking about all these people that are lazy, that are getting welfare checks and whatever else, they don't want to work, they got an excuse not to work, and he says, the problem with all lazy people in this country is they're not hungry enough. If they were hungry, that hunger would make them work, right? It'd make them work. And so, second... Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10 says <clears throat> for even when we were with you we would give you this commandment if anyone is not willing to work let him not eat so it's, it's not even just saying I caution you against giving money to people who won't work he's saying don't let them feel the hunger pains and then they'll learn their lesson George Ofer said about John Bunyan, he was the guy who compiled his works, he said, he had great powers of discrimination to distinguish between the poverty of idleness and that distress which arises from circumstances over which human foresight has no control. That's what we should do. There ought to be a love that discriminates between the actual poor and those who have just made really dumb decisions and keep making really dumb decisions and that's why they're poor with the hopes that the hunger pains will make them stop making dumb decisions. And this is a problem with the world we live in. And now what we've done is we've subsidized dumb decisions with government handouts, and so people just make more dumb decisions. More dumb decisions. Which you subsidize, you will multiply. So this is discriminating love. Let's look at another example of discriminating love. The distinction between those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. We have a primary obligation to those who are inside the church. So Galatians 6 verse 10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. <clears throat> See that? Special obligation for the Christian household, the Christian family, the church. Christ's greatest sense of duty was for his church, his people. So should be ours. And then we have a distinction, one more I'll give you, in discriminating love. As we talk about this discriminating love applied between Christians and false Christians, hypocrites. When somebody shows themselves to be a hypocrite who just goes around and babbles about Christianity, but there is no changed life we have a special obligation to avoid them. So that Second John verse 10 and 11 says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, 
Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked deeds. So this is dealing with people who have been excommunicated from the church because they've shown themselves to be hypocrites. Okay? Heard about a situation this week where somebody who was excommunicated from the church showed up at a social gathering. And I heard that some within the church had a hard time knowing how to deal with this particular person. Well, it's right there. It's pretty clear. It's black and white. It's as clear as day. Don't even greet them, it says. Why? Because they're supposed to feel the pinch or the prod that comes when somebody lives a hypocritical life so that that hopefully brings them to repentance. 1 Corinthians 5 says, with such a one do not even eat. There's a discriminating love. God loves all people, but his love is not the same for our all people, nor should ours be. In fact, if our love is the same for all people, it is ungodly and not Christ-like. We should love all people. There's no doubt in my mind. But our greatest obligation is towards those who are nearest to us and those who are nearest to God. So this discriminating love <clears throat> that's derived from God's love. Let me make one point. I'm going to wrap this one up quickly. It's not designed to be a long point. I want to talk about Christ's love. I want to talk about Christ's love. Christ's love for his people is the greatest love of all. And it's a love that is specifically for his people. It's a love that is specifically for his people. So Titus 2 verse 14 says, who, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who did he give himself for? For who was the atonement made? For us, it says. He set his affections upon his people, his elect, and he atoned for the sins, not thinking, oh, I hope some people get saved, but thinking, no, this is the number that will get saved. And so it is a special love that he has established for his people. And the entire second table of the law, commandments five through 10, can be summed up in this, love your neighbor is yourself, or love your neighbor. Do unto others as they would have them, you would have them do unto you. And in a society, speaking of Christ's love, in a society that prides itself in what? Tolerance, acceptance, inclusivity, diversity, and love is really, really lousy at true love. It's garbage and gobbledygook. So that we look at the love of Christ and you measure up to the love of Christ and you can help but say, I am a failure in all of this. And those who fail to love as Christ has loved will receive the discriminating love or will not receive the discriminating love of Christ upon judgment day. They will be upon his left hand and they will go straight to hell. This is, this is the great divide. 
What side of the love of Christ are you on this morning? What side? Are you on his left hand or his right hand? Because the ones on his right hand will receive his special love, the most pure form of love for all of eternity, for he died for them and shed his blood for them, and their sins are forgiven, and they have all of heaven to look forward to. But the ones are on his left hand, when the day of judgment finally comes, will never know love again. Ever. But will only be recipients of his divine wrath and hatred. This is, this is a gulf over which there is no bridge once it's done and done on judgment day. There's no bridge. But the free invitation of the gospel for you this morning is this. Come to Jesus and be forgiven and be a recipient of his special love. I hope you haven't come to the Ten Commandments series and been like, oh boy, I'm doing pretty good at this and I'm doing pretty good at this. I hope it's needling around in your heart and you're saying, you know what? My love does not measure up to Christ's love and therefore I need Christ. Won't you come to Jesus this morning? Won't you believe in Jesus Christ, the one who has loved perfectly? The one who is love? So that everyone that can hear my words is now without excuse, knowing full well that you need the Lord Jesus Christ because there is going to be a great discrimination on judgment day between those who he will love forever and those who he will not love forever. Those who will forever be the recipients of his love and those who will never see love again. Not even a glimpse of it. Never knowing it again. Won't you come to Christ today and know the great love of God through the forgiveness of sins. Be saved and cleansed and cleaned and made new and become a new creature and be recipients of this special love, this greatest of all loves that is displayed for God's people on the cross. Let's have prayer together. Father in heaven, we pray to you and we thank you for the love of Christ. <coughs> I pray that your people would bless you and honor you and learn how to manifest these various types of love and apply them to our lives, we pray. We pray, dear God, that you would make us more loving as you are loving with a truly godly love and that sinners among us would be saved and experience this perfect and pure love of God in Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.